All right. Um, do you believe or agree that we live in a world that is increasingly dangerous and divided? Sound about right? Okay. Sounds about right to me. There's all kinds of conflicts in this world, all kinds of disagreements, all kinds of war and pain involved with the divisions in our world. There's, of course, the ongoing crisis of the civil war in Syria. It has taken upwards of a half a million lives and millions and millions of refugees as a result. There's a battle against ISIS, both in Syria and in Iraq. Uh, North Korean saber-rattling nuclear tests, missile tests are making all of Asia very, very nervous, of course, with the latest assassination as well, and making the whole world nervous. Uh, China is not being a, a good neighbor to their uh, friends on the Asian continent and creating all kinds of havoc, and, uh, havoc internationally, particularly with, uh, uh, with trade waters. Russia seems to be posturing for a resurgence of uh, the Soviet Union. Sunni and Shia are in constant conflict throughout the Middle East. There's a civil war in Yemen that has now caused at least 3 million refugees. The Kurds and the Turks continue to battle it out. There's an advance of radical Islam throughout the world, but particularly in uh, northern uh, Af Africa. There's an ongoing struggle to free Afghanistan from the Taliban. It is now America's longest war. There is drug violence that continues uh, to take place all throughout South America with drug cartels and the scourge of drug addiction, particularly with opioids and heroin, is uh, taking lives by the hundreds of thousands, particularly among young people. So yeah, we live in a world that seems to be increasingly dangerous and divided. And I think the same is true in the United States, particularly with divisions, and particularly with political divisions. The level of political discourse and, and the divisions that are taking place in America is unprecedented, at least in my lifetime. And I haven't been alive very long, but I've done some research on this, and it seems to be that, that, that America has not been this politically divided in 150 years. It is radical what is happening. In fact, so much so that America is now being called the divided states of America. You might have heard that before. There's a PBS special on Frontline. It's a four-part series on the divided states of America. And I'm going to show you the trailer of that. It's a promotional trailer. Now, I want us to behave. I can, I can always count on this audience. If there's somebody there you like, don't cheer. If there's somebody there you dislike, don't boo. Just, just watch it and keep your hands under your thighs and... All right, let's take a look. Donald Trump will be the 45th president of the United I States. I pledge that I will be president for all Americans. A new president and a deeply divided country. The Donald Trump presidency is going to be anathema to at least part of the population and greatly welcomed by another part. And those two Americas have been at war with one another and they're likely to continue to be so. From Frontline's award-winning political team, the inside story of how we got here. The Republicans told the members, just say no. They thought they could ram this right through and to heck with conservatives. Through two terms of a Democratic president. They had decided we don't need to work with Republicans because we have super majorities on the Hill. And the civil war within the Republican Party. I had members who thought sitting down with the president was a big mistake. The searing events that drove the country further apart. The contradiction of this happening in the midst of a black presidency sharpened the irony and intensified the pain. One of my few regrets is my inability to reduce the polarization in our politics. One of his biggest disappointments was not being able to bridge that party divide, that toxicity in this town. And the voters' new choice for change. Donald Trump is the representation of the anti-Obama. He was speaking straight to tens of millions of Americans who think that they've been betrayed, not anger, betrayal by Washington. A Frontline special series, four hours over two nights.
beginning January 17th. All right, so we live in a divided world, an increasingly divided country, and we also have a divided faith. We are part of the Christian movement, and the Christian movement has been dividing and increasing in our division for many, many centuries. And so I want to give you a little bit of a, um, of a quiz here. How many denominations do you think exist, Christian denominations, do you think exist in this world? Just take a guess. Just whisper to your neighbor. I think there are denominations. 34,000 Christian denominations. Now, on the side screen here is uh, just a few of the denominations in America and sort of the genesis of those, and they all have various splits, and they continue to split. Denominations continue to split. And they split over all kinds of things, but particularly the conservative and, and liberal uh, wings of the, of, the, of, uh, of the Christian movement. The conservative Christian movement wants to see the Word of God taught in the proclamational gospel. In other words, this is the truth you need to know and believe so that you can be saved. The liberal side of Christianity wants the heart of Christ and the ministry of Christ uh, to be unleashed on the earth to care for the poor and to heal injustice and to show mercy for all people. Um, there is an increasing divide even in conservative Christianity. There are conservative Christians who are pro-Trump and conservative Christians who are against Trump. And that divide is continuing as well. So we have a divided world, a divided country, and Christianity itself is divided and continuing to divide. There's a, uh, a, a story that you might have heard before. It goes like this. A couple years ago, I saw a guy on a bridge, and he was about ready to jump. He says, I'm not loved. And I said, well, God loves you. Are you Christian or Jewish? He says, I'm Christian. Great. Are you Baptist or charismatic? He says, well, I'm Baptist. Excellent. Are you Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, I'm Northern Baptist. Excellent. So am I. Are you Northern Baptist conservative or Northern Baptist liberal? Northern Baptist conservative. Great. Are you Northern Baptist conservative Great Lakes or Eastern? Well, Eastern. Awesome. Are you Northern Baptist conservative Great Lakes Region Council 1879 or 1912? He says, 1912, so I pushed him off the bridge. That's a pretty familiar story. It's actually ranked the 44th funniest joke ever authored by an American. I don't know who counts all that stuff, but it's, a, it's, it's funny because it's true. It's funny because it's true. Here you have our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who came to bring unity in the world. He came to bring unity between God and man. He came to bring unity with one another. He gave his life to forgive sins so that we can be united with God. He gave his life to forgive sins so that there could be love that emerges between one another towards the goal of perfect unity. So if we are following that Jesus Christ, why is it that we as Christians are so divided? We look at Revelation 7. Revelation 7 paints, paints a great picture of the beautiful life and really the eternal life that we're all headed towards. It says this, in this great vision before the apostle John, there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. That is where all of human history is headed. This is the vision of Revelation that all of human history is headed towards the destination where God and mankind are perfectly united by God's forgiving grace in Christ, where mankind, all tribes, all tongues, all nations are together in unity in Jesus Christ. That's where human history is headed. Now, you can argue that we've taken a little step back over these last couple of decades, perhaps, where the world seems to be getting a little more divided. America seems to be getting a little more divided. The church, the Christian church, is getting a little more divided. We've, we've taken some steps back. 
But I believe Revelation 7 will be our future reality, and the love of Christ and the mercy of Christ will prevail, and all divisions on the earth between God and men will be done away with, and all divisions on the earth between humankind uh, will be eradicated when love and mercy replace all hate, all division, and all favoritism. This is why the pinnacle of the gospel experience to me is absolute unity. In, uh, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, the Apostle Paul says this, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized or identified into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is therefore neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Jesus Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul here is taking the worst of the divisions. Jews and Greeks hated each other. I mean, they were racist, fiercely racist, calling each other dogs. They couldn't even look at each other. But in Christ, they're one. In Christ, they're together. In Christ, there is love. The slave and the free were absolutely separated. There were the oppressors and those who were oppressed. They had nothing to do with each other. But in Christ, they're brothers and sisters. Male and female, one in Christ. So women aren't over there and guys over here and men have privileges and women don't. In Christ, all are one. This is the pinnacle of the gospel experience is unity. Unity with God and unity with one another. So here we are in James chapter 2, and James makes it very clear that unity is the beautiful life that James calls us to. So he says this, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. James doesn't mess around, right? He speaks in plain language, direct language, don't show favoritism. Now, he begins with two words to kind of, you know, butter us up. It's as though somebody said, hey, you know, we're friends, right? You ever had somebody do that? No, we're friends, right? What does that mean? It means you're going to get walloped. That's what it means. James does the same thing right here. He says, hey, brothers and believers, right? We're brothers and believers. Uh, we're all in this together, right? We believe in Jesus Christ. And then he just socks them. And I'm going to tell you right here today for the next 15 minutes, we're all going to get it. We're going to get it pretty good. James lays this on thick. And I say that because it's going to get pretty tense in here on a couple of occasions. It's going to get real silent in here, and that's going to be okay. And if you have any problems with what I'm going to say, first of all, it's God's Spirit through James. I'm just, I'm just a messenger. And if you have any problems with that, I want you to email jennifer.treadway at rancho.tv, and she'll take care of you. All right. <laughs> so the command here is don't show favoritism. Don't show favoritism. Now, in order for us to have a, a very honest dialogue around this subject, we have to realize that every single one of us struggles with favoritism. Is that a fair statement? Every one of us struggles with favoritism. None of us is immune. Let me put it this way. Every single one of us is naturally bent towards favoring people who are like us or favoring people who we want to be like. That's human nature. We always gravitate towards the people that have our same experience, whether it's our same ethnicity, our same economy, our same profession. We want to be around people that have the same sort of comfort level of our story. We want to share stories. Now, part of that is good. Part of that is, has been at least necessary for survival. You know, if you kind of analyze uh, human clans and tribes, sometimes you've got to cluster in order to save your family, right? That's sort of our ancient history. Now we're a little more refined. We don't need clans or tribes anymore. Uh, we are more civilized. You can put it that way if you'd like. Um, love more increases. And so this, this idea that, that we need a clan or a tribe for self-survival is not really the case anymore. So we might be better off in terms of our favoritism, 
but it's still there. It still lingers. Every one of us struggles at some point with favoritism. Whether intentionally or unintentionally, we struggle with it. I'm involved in two uh, networks, pretty substantial networks of uh, ministers who are leading churches and another network of leaders of nonprofits. And we get together a couple of times a year, and it's a very intentionally diverse community. And so there are men and women there fairly equally represented. Uh, there are people from every ethnicity virtually in those rooms. Um, we have our, our different ages, and so it's an intentionally diverse uh, community. And I started to notice something about seven years ago uh, when somebody was speaking, I wasn't looking at them, I was looking at how other people reacted to the people who were speaking. Because it is interesting, it's not very often you have an intentionally diverse community like that. And so what I noticed was pretty stark. When a Latino would start speaking, I noticed a lot of the Caucasians started looking at their phones. Oh, Latino speaking. What's happening on Facebook? Somebody text me lately, right? Now, they were kind and polite, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what's happening there? No, you know, arguments. They weren't being overtly disrespectful, but when the Latinos were speaking, especially with thicker accents, the Caucasians would start checking their devices. I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. And then I noticed the reverse to be true. When a Caucasian or a black member of our uh, network was speaking, the Latinos would start getting their phones and, oh, what's going on on Facebook? Who's texting me? And then I noticed when somebody spoke that I didn't quite connect with, I started reaching for my phone. What's going on? You know, it's all of us have that tendency to respect the people who are like us and share our story. Because if somebody who is Caucasian in a suburban environment starts talking about churches, I'm going to listen to that person because I can relate to their story, right? If somebody's outside that circle, I just have trouble connecting. And when I have trouble connecting, I get distracted. So we have to intentionally battle favoritism that's within all of us and intentionally battle to treat every single person in front of us with respect, to listen to them, to befriend them, to hear their heart, to engage in their story, to participate in their story. It takes a lot. It takes a lot. But that's the journey we're all involved in. Because we naturally favor our same race, we naturally favor our same economy, nationality, religion, political affiliation, professional status. We all do it. We like that sense of comfort and camaraderie. But the very clear command here in James is to not show favoritism. It's not a beautiful life to just hang around your own. The beautiful life is more diverse. It's more mosaic. The beautiful life intentionally chooses not to show favoritism but to give equal respect to all. What James was noticing in the early church here, this is first century church, what James was noticing was that the, the culture of the Roman Empire, what he calls a worldly culture, the culture of the Roman Empire was starting to filter into the church. It was starting to filter into the church. And so James writes this. He says, suppose a man comes into your meeting, comes into your church wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And by the way, this is, that's a very Roman thing to do. Romans were, were very uh, clear in which social strata they were in, and they dressed accordingly, and they adorned themselves according to their social st strata. And so this is happening right in church. People coming in, showing off their wealth with jewelry and fine clothes, and then a poor man comes in with shabby clothes. If you show special attention to the man who's wearing the fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by your feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, we might read that passage and say, well, that's not us, right? Uh, I mean, you look around here. There's some of you that have some means. You have some wealth. And there's some of you who are struggling. I really can't tell the difference between 
you too. I mean, we come in kind of wearing our normal clothes. Uh, I'm not a shoe expert. I don't know if you got that at Nordy's or if you got that at Ross. I have no idea or, or uh, uh, Goodwill. I don't even know if it's called Nordy's. I've never been inside of a Nordstrom's. I have no idea what it even looks like. So I can't tell the difference. Some of you can. You're real experts. But when it comes to church around Rancho, I have no idea who's rich or who's struggling. So we don't really struggle with that. So some of us might think, well, how is this really relevant? It's relevant because there's still that subtle favoritism that sometimes leaks out not so subtly. And we may have come a long way as a, as a culture. We may have come a long way since the Roman Empire. We might have come a long way um, since the early church who gave rich people preferential seating and the poor people had to stand up or sit on the ground. We've come a long way, but there's still that favoritism that is there. Now, in the Roman culture, which was the predominant culture of the time in the first century, they had very specific um, lines of who was respected and what privileges they uh, achieved in public life and in religious life. There was the top one-tenth of one percent. This was old money Rome, old money Rome. These are the Roman families that had, you know, thousands of acres of vineyards or orchards. Uh, they owned chunks of the city. And, uh, and these wealthy one-tenth of one percent had 90 percent of the power of the Roman Empire. Then there were the new money Romans. These were the Roman citizens who would take advantage of the expanding Roman Empire through business, through trade, and they would make new money wealth. Well, they didn't want to be around the snobs of the old money. The old money didn't want to be around the unrefined crassness of the new money, so they showed favoritism against each other. And then there was the 90%. And the 90% of the Roman Empire lived in poverty uh, pretty well, static, no hope of ever escaping. This was the Roman Empire. James saw this coming into the church, and he didn't want that to happen. First century Roman poet Juvenal said this about the Roman Empire. He said, let money carry the day. No God is held in such high reverence among us as wealth, even though you, evil money, have no temple of your own as yet. This poet knew that money was the actual supreme God of Rome. Now, Rome had the pantheon of thousands of gods, but this poet knew that their God really was money. And if you looked at the United States of America, I bet you could come up with the same conclusion. We all have our religions and our churches, and, but you really look at the value, what really drives the United States of America, and it is economy. It is money. There's no question about that. And so as James saw this value of money and greed and favoritism pour into the early church, we still have to be aware of that reality taking place right under our noses. It may not look the same with seating charts based on wealth, but it absolutely exists. We've got to battle that. So how do we battle it? How do we battle favoritism? Well, a couple of things real quick. First, I think we have to understand that God has a very, very special place in his heart for the poor. God has a very special place in his heart for the poor. God actually esteems the poor. You can make a biblical argument, esteems the poor above the rich. It's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to what? Walk through the eye of a needle. There's a very special place in God's heart for the poor. In discussing favoritism and least and greater, Jesus said what? The greatest shall be least and the least shall be what? Greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus had a heart for the poor, a very special place in his heart for the poor. James 2 puts it this way. Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. 
It's unthinkable to insult the very people God esteems as a very special place in his heart. Now, I know a lot of us are middle class. I mean, this is, this is Temecula, Marietta Valley, right? We are predominantly middle, middle class. There's a lot of people who struggle for sure. A lot of people who struggle who come to church here. There's a lot of you who are, who are wealthy. But for many of us in the middle class, can, can we say with honesty that we look at people who are poor and say they are very special in the eyes of God? I'd evaluate my own thoughts in, in studying this passage this week. Now, we have a lot of ministry to the poor, a lot of ministry to the poor. We meet the needs of this valley in so many profound ways, but, but can I admit that um, I don't necessarily treat poor people as though they're a very special, esteemed people in God's eyes? I've got to correct that thinking. People who struggle economically are very, very special to God. You might recall the Sermon on the Mount in Luke 6. Jesus said this, he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. The poor and the hungry are blessed because Jesus knows there is a great day of favor that will be poured out upon them. We've got to look at poor people as very, very blessed in the eyes of God. Let me get a little more specific. We need to view the immigrant as very, very special in the eyes of God. The immigrant. You study scripture and we see that the immigrant had a place in God's heart that was very unique. Leviticus 19.33 says this, when an alien lives with you in your land, do not ill treat him. The alien living with you must be treated as one, uh, as one of your native born. Love him as yourself, for you were also aliens in Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. It says treat the alien as native born. Love him as you love yourself. Now, is that our general understanding of how we treat the immigrant in the United States of America? That's a hard one. Typically, the immigrant and the immigration uh, scene is about politics and division. We're divided over immigration. Now, I want to be very, very clear and very specific. I'm not a politician putting, a poli putting out a, a, a political you know, a platform here. We're not talking about politics. Any government has the right to make immigration laws as they see fit to protect their country. Any of us has the right to vote for any politician that we agree with about immigration or, any, or anything else. But we're talking about the immigrant that is here. The immigrant that is here, the immigrant that, that is among us, whether legal, illegal, documented, undocumented, God commands us to treat those people very, very well. They have a very special place in God's heart. Very special place in God's heart. And we also have to be honest that this valley, this Temecula Marietta Valley, has performed terribly when it comes to the immigration uh, scene in the United States of America. You might recall several years ago, uh, there was an influx of families from South America, and they had no place to go. For whatever political reason they came here, we can debate that, argue that, that's not the point. The point is that they got here, and they're here. And they needed to be placed, at least temporarily, because all of the immigration uh, shelters and compounds were full. They had to be placed as they were being processed. You might recall, I believe there were three buses that were sent to Marietta. Let's just say the Temecula Marietta Valley. And we flipped out. And we protested, and we turned those buses away. I'm telling you right now, that is not the heart of God. These are poor immigrant families that needed to be cared for for a period of time for them to be processed. We turned it into a political fight and political division. We turned human beings into political pawns. I was very sad to watch that unfold, and I was made even sadder to scan the protesters 
and to see that they were predominantly middle-aged and older white Christians, making a political scene out of it. I have to be honest with you, it was embarrassing. It was embarrassing. The immigrant has a very special place in God's heart. Since we're already involved in awkward silence, let's go one more. The refugee has a very special place in God's heart. The refugee has a very special place in God's heart. Another quiz. Who is the most famous refugee to ever have lived? Some of you got it right. You're whispering it. Jesus. Jesus Christ. The most famous refugee to ever live. Now, I might be late to the party. That light bulb just went on in my head last week. I might be totally late to this party. But I'm prepping this, and I thought, Jesus was a refugee. Absolutely. You might recall the story in Matthew chapter 2. Uh, king Herod got word that a new king had been born, so Herod uh, made a political decree that all male children, two years old and under, were to be slaughtered by the sword. You recall that story? Very tragic, very famous story. Um, the mother of Jesus and Joseph were called to escape this political torment and flee to which country? Egypt. Egypt welcomed in Jesus Christ and his parents as refugees. They held them. They took care of them until the danger was over, and this was years, and then they moved back in safety. If it wasn't for Egypt, compassionately taking in refugees from a, a, a psychopath as a, as a dictator, Jesus would have been cut in half by Herod's sword. And so we have to just kind of take that into account here. As we talk about refugees, we're not talking about a political issue. We're not talking about Republican and Democrat. We're not talking about economy. We're talking about human beings whose family members have been killed, who've been pushed away from their country and have no home. And in their minds, they can't grasp a future and a hope. And there are very compassionate countries, and you can argue the wisdom of every country's policy, and that's not the issue here. The issue is we ought to be open to, to welcoming them in, and we ought to be very compassionate. And I do have to say this. I am so proud, I mean unspeakably proud, of many, many Christians who are taking care of refugees from Syria and other parts of the world. They are, Christians are leading the way in so many cities and caring for refugees. In L.A., they are rocking it. In Phoenix, they are really rocking it. The church is, is front and center making sure these refugees are taken care of, making sure that the compassion of Jesus Christ that we received is shared with people who are homeless, globally homeless. And I certainly hope, and I would absolutely trust, that if the federal government decided to expand the refugee intake, not likely anytime soon, but if that happened and they were placed by the federal government, Temecula Marietta Valley Rancher Community Church would be at the front of the line saying, we, it will be our privilege and pleasure to take care of these people. Absolutely. But I don't think that's going to happen, not just because of current politics, but because Temecula Marietta Valley has already spoken about how we will treat outsiders, and it did not go well. So I doubt we're going to have the privilege of taking care of refugees from Syria anytime soon. But there's other ways we can do that, and we certainly have a lot of things that we're doing already to, uh, to look into that. And there will be programs and partnerships ongoing for sure. James really lays it on thick as he concludes this part here. As if it's not already serious enough, he says this. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, and the royal law is very clear. It says Jesus defined it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law. That's the law of Christ. That's the summation of the Ten Commandments. It's the summation of all of God's commandments to love your neighbor as yourself. If we do that, we're doing right. 
Now, Jesus made it very clear who our neighbor is. Sometimes we think of our neighbor as the person who looks like us right next door, the person who, you know, shares our culture, shares our economy, shares our neighborhood. Jesus says that's not a neighbor. He pointed to the the Samaritan, the good Samaritan who cared for the beaten and bloodied Jew in the streets. He said, those are the neighbors, the Samaritan and the Jew, the rich and the poor, the have and the have-nots, those are the neighbors. That is the royal law. That's the law of freedom, to love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as law breakers. For whoever keeps the whole law, yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. And then James goes on, and this is a little uncomfortable at first, but James goes on to compare favoritism with murder and adultery. He says, listen, religious communities, you're you're very proud of the fact that you haven't murdered anybody, great. You're very proud of the fact that you haven't committed adultery, great. But you're committing favoritism. And James compares favoritism with murder and adultery. Essentially, he's saying, if you commit murder, you're taking somebody's life. If you commit adultery, you're taking somebody's family. If you commit favoritism, you're taking somebody's dignity and their humanity. It's stealing from somebody. And this is all of our issues. We all struggle with favoritism. We all struggle with judgment. We all look down upon some people and we all esteem other people. We all do it. We all tend to cluster towards people like us and we tend to, you know, kind of disregard or marginalize or push aside people who are not like us. We all tend to do that. So we all have got to look at this mirror and we've all got to to come to the realization that I've got things to improve. I've got to build more bridges. I've got to build more friendships. I've got to partner with people who are unlike me. I've got to pay close attention when people share their story. If it's not a story I can relate with immediately, I've got to engage in that story, ask questions about that story, participate in that story. I've got to get out of my kind of white middle class, you know, bubble more and get engaged in a more diverse way in this world. I will be enriched by that. And I will be increasingly free from favoritism and judgment. James closes out this segment with a very simple one phrase encouragement that mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We all judge. We all judge, and we might think, you know, how can we get free from that? Replace judgment with mercy. Wherever you judge somebody, a homeless person, poor person, illegal immigrant, refugees, people who are Democrats, you know, Republicans, Trump lovers, Trump haters, wherever we judge, replace that with mercy. Intentionally, actively replace that with mercy. And the way we can do that better than, I think, anything is to get to know their story in friendship. Spend some time with them. Take a break at work with them. Go out to lunch with them. Hang out with them, right? Hang out with people who are unlike you. Build bridges. We will be deepened, we'll be enriched, and we will show the light and love of Jesus Christ. Very famously, Mahatma Gandhi um, was very attracted to Jesus Christ. In fact, he spent a lot of time reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He was drawn to Christ. He was a little dissatisfied with Hinduism, and he felt that there was more out there, and so he explored Christianity, but he came face-to-face with South African apartheid, right? This is institutional racism driven by the church in South Africa. 
intentionally, institutionally oppressing uh, Africans, Native Africans. These were, these were colonists, and they, they moved into South Africa, and they held on to their power. This very small minority of white Christians hung on to the power and abused and mistreated um, uh, the Africans in, in, uh, in their nation. And not only was the church doing it in South Africa, but the church was silent globally. The Christian church was silent globally. And so Mahatma Gandhi said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Now, there are pockets of Christianity that are absolutely favoritist and judgmental, and there's that in all of us, but I think there is a wonderful, burgeoning movement of compassion and mercy coming from the Christian church in such powerful ways that I believe we, in short order, will shine the light of Christ perhaps like never before. If we can get over the idea of political bantering and we can understand that every single person who we run across is a very precious human being made in the image of God, that God loves uniquely, especially if they're poor and marginalized and oppressed. If we can get our heads around the fact for the rest of our lives that, God, there is favoritism, there is judgment in me, and, and for the rest of our lives, say, God, expose it and cut it out and replace that with mercy. Then I think we're going to see the light of Christ blaze through his church. And this little bump in the road that we've had with global divisions and national divisions and divisions in the church, it'll be a bump in the road, and what emerges is greater unity towards that Revelation 7 vision of an entire world one with God and an entire world one with each other. That day is coming. I may not see it in my lifetime, but I'm telling you, if the church gets serious about this issue of unity and love and mercy, we'll see that that story begins to be told in unprecedented ways for the glory of God and the benefit of others. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for the love that you gave us through Jesus Christ. Thank you that Jesus Christ, who has every right to judge, chose not to judge, but instead give mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment, and we see that so clearly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God, we follow him, and so we want to be more like him. And we trust your spirit's power through your word and through our camaraderie with one another that we will be more and more like Christ with every passing day that we would have this soul-searching culture about ourselves that, that tries to dissect where we show favoritism and where we show judgment and asks you perhaps every day, God, free me from this. Your law of love gives us freedom, gives us freedom to replace judgment with mercy, gives us freedom to not look down upon anybody regardless of ethnicity, culture, background, regardless of religious or political affiliation, but we can love everyone indiscriminately and even recklessly, that your church would show off the love of Christ as the leader locally and globally of what it's like to love people, especially the poor, the marginalized, the immigrant, the refugee. God, that we would show off the light of Christ so thoroughly that the world would be drawn to follow him because they see him in us. May we walk a journey of grace, love, mercy, compassion. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.